0: Hello, welcome to The Weekly Brief, brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal, and we're honored today to have as our guest Les Schiffelbein, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Silicon Valley Arbitration and Mediation Center. Les comes to his current work as an arbitrator, especially in international arbitrations, but in all kinds of arbitrations, with a combination of backgrounds that brings unique attributes to these areas. Wes was a vice president and deputy general counsel of the Lockheed Martin Corporation. And while he was at Lockheed Martin, as a matter of fact, he was the first attorney at Lockheed Martin to be honored with the Lockheed Martin Career Excellence Award. Wes also served for many years in the Air Force Judge Advocate General Corps, both on active and reserve duty, retired with the rank of Colonel. And in the Air Force JAG, he also received The Reginald Herman Award is the Outstanding Air Force Reserve Legal Officer. So Les Schiffelbein brings to our discussion today about arbitration and international arbitration a unique background and a unique presence. He is on the panel of virtually every arbitration organization. Uh, He is in the London Court of International Arbitration, on arbitration panels in Singapore, throughout Asia. He has worked in the Korean Arbitration Panel. And he brings to us both his current experience and his work with the Silicon Valley Arbitration Mediation Center to talk to us about the importance of international arbitration, especially important, not just for lawyers, but for the functioning of the world economy. Wes, thank you so much for joining us. We're honored that you've taken the time.
1: Howard, thank you. I look forward to our discussion.
0: let's talk first because it sets the framework for what we're doing. What is the importance of international arbitration, uh, not just to to the legal system, but to the world economy?
1: The expansion of trade and the globalization uh, that we've recently seen slowing down a bit now is an underpinning is the use of, of international arbitration. And I'd like to draw upon in my experience as a corporate counsel, and, and and my view as to why international arbitration is is so important in this process, and I really link two things, and and the first is the flexibility of the international arbitration process, and the second is enforcement under the New York Convention. But but first, flexibility. Um, You know, I've come to understand over the years that the real advantage of international arbitration uh, to the business, and it was something I had to learn and something I had to explain to my executive suite uh, when we would enter into a contract with international arbitration, is that the process is flexible. It is a process that is agreed to by the parties and this agreement process leads to a understanding of fairness and uh, equitable treatment of the parties. And, and I'd just like to cover briefly, um, you know, what the steps are in, in flexibility, what the building blocks are. Because uh, first, uh, the parties could really, by contract provision, determine what disputes will be covered. Uh, many contract provisions say any and all disputes related to uh, to the contract. Uh, others are a little bit more lengthy and, and cover some more mileage. But you can determine um, with the two parties what you want to be covered in your arbitration provision. And I think really one of the most important choices is you can determine the arbitration uh, institution whose rule rules uh, will govern the arbitration process. And another point of that is the parties can determine, and I think this is very important, and is um, oftentimes uh, not understood and appreciated by even seasoned practitioners in international arbitration. They can determine, the parties can determine, the seat of the arbitration. Uh, That is the legal home of the uh, arbitration, It is generally the location where the arbitration is being held, but at times, parties can pick a different location than the seat of the arbitration. But most importantly, the legal home, the legal seat, um, the courts of that jurisdiction will use their procedural rules to guide the arbitration itself. So, it's very important in uh, determining the seat in your arbitration clause to be very familiar with the local courts and to see if they are attentive to process issues that may arise during the arbitration itself.
0: What you said is, is tremendously important to put in the context of people often ask the wrong question. Sometimes people ask the question broadly. Uh, should What is the choice between arbitration and going to court? Should we go to arbitration instead of going to court, or should we go to court? But what you're emphasizing, which is so critical, is you can't just talk about the word arbitration as a generic word where the only choice is arbitration or litigation, because one of the advantages of arbitration is that the parties have the ability to shape the dispute resolution mechanism in their most efficient and fair way. Within their agreement, and so it's not simply a choice between arbitration and litigation. The key is how you draft the arbitration clause.
1: Well, uh, Howard, you, you hit the nail on the head, and um, I think that, uh, and I mentioned earlier in my comments. Um, you know, I learned some uh, some hard lessons over the years in uh, in dealing with arbitration and and, and how to treat uh, the issues I'm going through. But, um, you know, the message and what I'd like to emphasize uh, to corporate counsel in particular is that, as you say, sometimes it's considered a digital process. But if you think through um, the input that corporations and corporate counsel have to determining the structure of an arbitration provision and the steps of the arbitration itself, uh, they can do it in a thoughtful way and and do it in a way that uh, could possibly uh, be the most uh, helpful for the corporation itself. And And all the steps would be understood and you can go through them and you can evaluate your your results from them. And once you're in the arbitration process itself, you may have the opportunity to change vector or change course. In, in your argument slightly or or, or your positions
0: to well, you are now to talking as a, where you are. Yeah, you're now talking as an arbitrator to corporate clients and to others trying to decide whether to do arbitration or how to manage it. But let me ask you, from the standpoint of having been in the corporate counsel suite, having been the deputy general counsel at Lockheed Martin, having to make so many decisions, not just about the arbitration clause, but about choosing counsel, as you look for outside counsel as 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 a general counsel, when you look for outside counsel, what are the attributes you look for in lawyers advising you on arbitration, and is there any difference between the attributes you look for in terms of lawyers who may handle arbitration as opposed to those who may have done litigation? Um,
1: you know i I always uh, dealt. With lawyers within law firms who had expertise in the matters that were in the ma- that were before us, um, I was never one who continued all business with one law firm, and and why? Um, when you're dealing with arbitration, uh, you have to have an outside counsel who is sophisticated in. The issues I've been talking about in international arbitration—they they have to have been through the process and they have to be successful in the process—and that would hold too also for for litigation. But it is it's with a sharper pencil that you use it for international arbitration because international arbitration is generally not in the toolkit of a lot of dispute resolution lawyers. Secondly, um, I had to have a very good working relationship with outside counsel I I hired. Uh, We didn't have to be good friends, but we had to be cordial enough that we could respect the differences in our decision-making and still remain on course and, and on point to what we were doing. And, and the third ingredient, and, and this is the most important one to, to me in a lot of cases, um, in very large uh, international arbitrations, the Lockheed Law Department was partnered with a law firm. And we would agree 50-50 on what needed to be done or, or what should be done and make corrections during the, the uh, arbitration process. But the deciding vote as to where we were going belonged to Lockheed Corporation, because we were the ones who were responsible for the result to our executives and and our shareholders. And if we didn't have that chemistry or that mechanism and respect and understand the rules of the road, um, that's someone who I wouldn't hire in either litigation or arbitration.
0: I do want to go back for one moment because you mentioned it, and we've gone into this interesting area of of counsel and clauses and, and choosing lawyers and working together. But in terms of why you would choose international arbitration over litigation, you mentioned the New York Convention and how important it is to why one would choose the international arbitration process rather than litigation in court. Take a moment to talk with those who may not be familiar with it about the New York convention and why it's the bedrock of why international arbitration is so important.
1: I'll get to that, but I I'd like to, uh, I really should have talked about one more point in, in arbitration versus litigation. And and that is, and, uh, it was for the Lockheed corporation boards, but it's for many similarly situated, uh, corporations. Um, we had longstanding business relationships with customers and suppliers, and the best way to settle those disputes is through arbitration. Uh, there's a confidentiality uh, position in there which protects trade secrets, uh, confidential information, Confidentia- and confidentiality usually applies. Uh, across the globe, only to the arbitrators and the arbitration institution. But parties readily enter into uh, confidentiality agreements to protect uh, other types of information. And it works well. You can be in an arbitration on Friday and uh, take the boxing gloves off when you finish it. And on Monday morning, be back as partners um, at the negotiation table. But two. To the New York Convention, um, the New York Convention is, is, is really the bottom line as to why companies choose international arbitration. It is uh, commonly called the New York Convention, but the formal name is the Convention on the Recognition and Enforcement of Foreign Arbitral Awards. As I said, commonly known as the New York Convention, and it was adopted by the United Nations Diplomatic Conference in June of 1958, and the U.S. adopted the convention on September 30, 1970. And the the pivotal uh, point of the convention is it requires courts of contracting states. And these are the signatories to the New York Convention. And at present, there's 164 signatories across the globe. Requires the courts of contracting states to give effect to private agreements to arbitrate and to recognize and enforce arbitration awards made in other contracting states. So to put this in context, um, international arbitration, really has grown up in the United States and across the globe in the last 40 to 50 years. Without the convention to enforce arbitration agreements and awards prior to the convention, parties were left to go to local courts. They might get a, uh, a judgment, but then it was very difficult to enforce the arbitration award with an international party who was doing business or who had assets outside the United States. The New York Convention is a um, worldwide enforcing mechanism, and it is the real reason why, um, one of the real reasons why corporations are willing to enter into into international arbitration.
0: And in terms of that, I mean, the contrast here, is if there were no convention, look at the option of litigation, no matter what court judgment that you got. I mean, in the United States, the court judgment in any of the states is entitled to full faith and credit in other states of the United States, but not you can't take that American-based, U.S.-based court judgment and go to other countries and enforce that court judgment in other countries. But what the New York Convention does, if you go through the arbitration process and the process complies with the international, uh, with the New York Convention, then you can take that arbitration award, unlike a judgment, you take that arbitration award and can enforce it in any of the 160 plus countries that have signed the convention. So it really is the only way to internationally enforce an award against a party, isn't it? There is really no other way to do that.
1: You know, uh, it, it's it's a it's a good recognition point and and reflection point in in corporate practice because um, corporate ex- executives, the individuals who run the companies, the chief financial officer, and and even if you have very very material cases that go up to Uh, are briefed to the board of directors. Um, These individuals understand more or less the points of of litigation. Um, They may have some in their personal lives, uh, but in their their, their business lives, uh, more often than not, um, they hear about litigation within the corporation. Um, It's very important for corporate counsel and, and also for outside counsel who, who have the opportunity to brief senior executives on, on arbitration issues. You know, to, to always be aware of these, these fine and distinguishing points that make international arbitration valuable. And when I would visit the executive suite or, or talk to the board on these matters, um, I always took the time to, to go over Uh, what the New York Convention provided for, and and how it was meaningful for Lockheed Martin in in our international business interests.
0: Tell us now, we've talked about the importance for the international economy uh, and working within the corporation. Uh, Tell us about the Silicon Valley Arbitration and Mediation Center, of which you're now the chief executive officer, Uh, and its importance, especially in California and internationally, but with the growth of international arbitration in California.
1: I'd be very happy to do that. Um, I am honored and, and and very proud to be the chief executive of the Silicon Valley Arbitration Mediation Center. And in in fact, um, back to the early days of Silicon Valley in two thousand and fourteen, um, I was one of the uh, the founding members of it. Um, but at first, I want to distinguish Silicon Valley. The Silicon Valley is a leading nonprofit that advances the use of arbitration and mediation in technology business disputes. It is uh, distinguished from arbitration institutions such as AAA, ICDR, ICC, or JAMS. Uh, Silicon Valley uh, does not take cases, appoint arbitrators, or conduct any of the functions of arbitration institutions. Uh, simply, we don't compete with arbitration institutions. We're only a voice, uh, an advocate for technology uh, ADR. And you know, we came to be uh, because the founders were in Silicon Valley, and uh, we understood that there was a a small number of matters that Silicon Valley companies. Uh, we're taking to alternative dispute resolution. And our understanding at the time is that maybe this was because there was a, a lack of information on the value of ADR, or possibly there were not uh, known uh, arbitrators or mediators uh, who could handle tech cases, and I mean very sophisticated technology cases and had a track record for success. And so we started with what we call a, a tech list, and it's now 53 individuals across the globe who are recognized arbitrators and mediators um, in the tech space. But, but more to your question, um, you know, what role does Silicon Valley play in, in, in California for uh, international dispute resolution?
0: And I'm sorry, Les, I just wanted to say, when you're using the word Silicon Valley as shorthand for the Silicon Valley Arbitration and Mediation Center. Correct. Okay. Thank you. And before we go on, I wanted to say that, but also we've been talking about Les's background, experience, the importance of international arbitration. And we now are hearing the value and importance of the Silicon Valley Arbitration and Mediation Center, what it has done, what's happening in California. Let's take a break and learn about how you can get MCLE credit for listening to this. Listening to this hour-long podcast, you can obtain full MCLE credit for it through The Daily Journal and we'll take a short break so you can hear how that can be done and then we will return.
2: The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit, all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. With a constant flow of information about the COVID-19 pandemic, it's become hard to keep up. That's why we've put all our coronavirus-related content into one place. Now you can find COVID appellate cases, news articles, guest columns, and episodes of The Weekly Brief on our new page. Stay up to date by visiting dailyjournal.com COVID.
0: We are back now continuing our discussion about the Silicon Valley Arbitration Mediation Center, and you had begun explaining us essentially, as you've described it, it almost serves as a credentialing organization in a sense of of, of its members and, and, and what its members bring to the table.
1: It brings credentialing in, in the sense of the folks who are on the, uh, the, the tech list. But um, if I may, I'd like to just chat about um, really what what Silicon Valley Arbitration and Mediation Center brings to the table um, in, in terms of how we assist uh, international arbitration and mediation. And our mission really is to be a, a, a thought leader. Um, we are structured uh, so that our members uh, participate in our groups across the globe. And we work with leading arbitration institutions, uh, academics, law schools, neutrals, corporate counsel, and law firm practitioners to dialogue on ADR in the technology sector. And, and we do it this way. Uh, we have a worldwide organization. We have a worldwide f- footprint We have a international committee that has user groups in North America, South America, the Caribbean, Asia, and Europe, Middle East, and and Africa. And we conduct seminars, uh, virtual programming today, and initiatives. One we're doing right now is um, use of blockchain and smart contracts, in technology, ADR. So we do that not only within the state of California, but worldwide. And we really have sharpened our focus in dealing with corporate counsel. We have a a very ambitious corporate counsel task force that is about to roll out a series of virtual webinars, participative with corporate counsel, so that we can have a better understanding and and a better dialogue with corporate counsel on the advantages of uh, ADR and the technology center. So we bring thought leadership. We bring an organization that has um, global members. Those folks in the user groups live and practice in those regions of the globe. So we bring a very sharp focus to ADR.
0: And you talked about bringing a sharp focus to ADR and the name of the center is Silicon Valley Arbitration and Mediation Center. And though we've spoken a fair amount about international arbitration, we have not spoken about international mediation and especially talked recently about a new international convention analogous to the New York Convention for Arbitration that we've spoken of. The Singapore Mediation Convention recently signed and now operative. Tell us about the Singapore Convention, about international mediation and how those two go together and will grow.
1: Let me um, let me step back uh, and introduce the Singapore uh, Convention, because um, the reasons for the Singapore Convention, I think, mirror my experience as a corporate counsel as to the need for it. over the last 10, 15, 20 years, uh, international mediation uh, has, has really not been an ADR technique that has been robustly used. And, and I really think there are three reasons for it. Um, there's multiple parties involved in an international mediation You have multiple lawyers, uh, you have multiple executives, you have multiple time zones, you have different cultures, you have different languages, you have the need for translators. And while all this is part of arbitration and accepted, in mediation, um, the moving pieces never settled as well as arbitration. Um, And also... It has been my experience in international mediation that oftentimes the mediation is conducted not necessarily with the goal of reaching a settlement, but with the goal of having a better idea of the counterparty's case. And third has been the issue of enforcement, and this comes to the Singapore Convention. Um, Much as we saw in arbitration with the New York Convention, um, prior to the Singapore Convention, uh, if you had a executed settlement agreement to an international matter, there was no protocol to enforce it globally. Uh, your resolve was left to the local courts to sue for breach of contract for the settlement agreement and hopefully to enforce Uh enforce the settlement agreement. But the Singapore Convention, um, the U.S. uh, is a signatory to it and was a moving party to it. And it entered into a force just a few days ago, September 12th of uh, of 2020. There are 53 countries that are signatories to it, uh, but to date it has only been ratified by six countries. So what it does is simply this. The convention establishes a framework for direct enforcement by national courts in ratifying states, and the parenthetical in ratifying states is important, and I'll get to it, of mediated settlement agreements of international disputes. The Singapore Convention is the rough equivalent of the New York convention for arbitration. And, and I mentioned the parenthetical and ratifying states. Uh, to date, only six states have ratified the convention. Uh, the U.S., which is a signatory, has not ratified the convention. And uh, uh, hopefully in, in the near future, um, they will. But it it erases one of the stumbling blocks to international mediation agreements that that I mentioned, the enforcement issue. And um, I predict that uh, in the coming years, and particularly once this agreement is ratified by some of the um, major global uh, players, the U.S., uh, China, the U.K., um, and others, that international mediation will take off, um, particularly like uh, international arbitration took off once we had the New York Convention.
0: Because what it what it removes, really, I mean, the fact that if you mediated international arbitration and, and came to this kind of settlement agreements that are entered into in mediation, you couldn't take that settlement agreement outside the jurisdiction in which you were and have it enforced internationally that itself had to have been, was a major contributor to people not putting in the effort uh, uh, to get it done. But that is on the road to being uh, 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 to being taken care of as more and more countries uh, ratify. So are there now uh, more extensive uh, things happening within the international dispute resolution community in terms of promoting mediation? California has one of the strongest mediation cultures in the world. So is this something that the California mediation culture can bring to the international community in terms of promoting the efficiency of mediation as the Singapore Convention continues to be ratified?
1: You know, the the experience in, in the state of California, um, particularly with uh, with domestic arbitration, it is not necessarily transferable uh, one-to-one to international uh, mediation. How, however, um, this, is, this is the perfect time and, and really the, the perfect place uh, for practitioners, international uh, uh, law practitioners, arbitrators, mediators, and, and, and those who are scholars in international law, to, to really focus and, and and work towards introducing international mediation to uh, to the state of California, um, you know, I um, I was looking uh, when I was doing some review here as to places in the Pacific Rim where um, there were safe seats. Um, for arbitration. And, and two of the places are San Francisco and um, Los Angeles. But I looked at the Pacific Rim countries and only Hong Kong, Seoul, and Vancouver are consensus choices to being safe seats for uh, arbitration. So in California... We have a $3 trillion a year economy, the fifth largest economy in the globe. And when you put us in presence of the Asia rim, um, it is is a natural that we could become the leaders of an international mediation. And international mediation, once recognized, and we're going to need that critical step of being ratified by uh, by our government, um, we could be in the forefront of that. We could be in the forefront as much for international mediation as we soon will be for international arbitration, joining us being in the forefront of technology and entertainment across
0: the globe. It's a natural fit i would think even even a greater opportunity for california to become central to international mediation because in international arbitration uh, there's such a history and 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 other venues uh and other institutions outside the united states that have historically been the base the, the basis of moving forward international arbitration. But California is really, as we said, the center of mediation culture. And so as the convention, Singapore Convention gets ratified, a major push by California entities, certainly the Silicon Valley mediation, uh, Arbitration Mediation Center as well, by bringing the California mediation experience and adapting and bringing it to the attention, especially in the Pacific Rim, but I think worldwide, because of really the lack of competitors here, uh, can make California an international center for all mediation, I think.
1: You know, um, as, as a tag on to that, the, um, the the pandemic has really um, given mediation a, a new, fresh look. And businesses are looking for ways, global businesses as well as California businesses, are looking for a way to solve their near-term business problems and retain healthy and successful business relationships. And with uh, closed courts and clogged court calendars, um, mediation is, is, is starting to uh, regain, regain its foothold. And it's been very, very successful um, start both in California and and across the globe. It, it has really been the go-to tool um, since the pandemic came, and it it has really been enhanced by the fact that mediations are being conducted virtually. Um, and and I think a great part of that is that decision makers who formerly had to be contacted on telephones uh, when they were not present at the mediation uh, can now participate virtually. It's a shorter communication line for authority, for settlement, but also the senior decision makers get a sense in an hour or so uh, about what's happening in the mediation. Um, how they would like to participate and, um, wh- whether the process is, is going well. So it, uh, this is where the, uh, the virtual tool ha- has really engaged a, uh, a portion of ADR and, and made it more useful and more successful. And the same, and the same will happen, uh, with international mediation, uh, being done virtually.
0: And it, it uh, applies to two of the areas you've spoken about. One, corporations that are dealing, having need to dis- to resolve discussions and disputes with people with whom they have ongoing business relationships, suppliers or others. This can be done immediately. And also, the virtual tool really helps deal with the other complexity you mentioned: international mediation, was that the sheer number of people from different places with different languages that have to be brought together that can be done far more easily and continuously over time through the use of virtual tools without putting the burden of scheduling and traveling on people to different locations over a period of time. So the virtual virtual tools here in mediation, combined with the increasing enforcement of international mediation agreements, uh, really present, uh, as we've both spoken, a great opportunity for the growth of Of mediation through the California experience. Uh, We have been talking first about international arbitration, now about international mediation. Uh, The Daily Journal carries numerous reports on these issues and covers many other issues as well. We'll now take another break and hear about some of the other current news and important stories that the Daily Journal is covering.
2: The Weekly Brief is brought to you by The Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of October 5th. First District Court of Appeals Judge Martin J. Jenkins is Governor Newsom's pick to replace the recently retired Justice Ming Chin on the California Supreme Court. If confirmed, Jenkins will be the first openly gay and the third black male justice to sit on the bench of California's highest court. Jenkins's colleagues have lauded his skills as a jurist, saying he's insightful and thoughtful as well as well-liked. Retired Justice Chin remarked their careers have paralleled each other in many ways, and Jenkins would make a great justice. With nearly 30 years in the judiciary under his belt, Jenkins breaks from the recent mold of California Supreme Court justices, and his age has some speculating on how long he would serve. He turns 67 next month, and some say if Newsom wins another term, Jenkins could step aside at 73 to guarantee Newsom another state Supreme Court pick. Courts across the state have announced various closures in recent weeks to combat budget constraints. The Riverside County Superior Court cited the state's $54 billion deficit from the pandemic as why it will be closing every third Friday through the end of the fiscal year on June 30th. COVID could have a worse financial effect on the courts than the Great Recession, not only because of the additional costs of protective equipment, but because of the massive court backlog of cases. So far, there's no end in sight, and in the meantime, mediations and private judging are being used as alternatives to trials. California's first online bar exam is done, and it went better than expected. Despite early concerns test-takers would not be able to even access the test— Test software provider ExamSoft reported more than 98% of exam takers passed the verification process and were able to complete the first day's essays. Some students had issues calling into ExamSoft for tech support, experiencing wait times of over an hour in some cases. But most reported having no issues. ExamSoft reported fewer support calls on the second day and said they were able to handle the volume of calls by bringing in new staff and reallocating existing staff to support the influx. Results from the bar exam aren't expected until January. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles.
0: We're back now, having spoken about the basis of international arbitration and mediation. Unless you've emphasized, especially in California, the importance of these techniques in the technology sector, which is the center of the reason for the Silicon Valley arbitration and mediation center. You mentioned blockchain. Are there other particular technology disputes that have become the focus and the need for these international dispute resolution mechanisms?
1: You know, we focus in um, it's Silicon Valley um, on ADR techniques, and you know, to to pro- to provide a, a futuristic look. Uh, that's why we have groups and and, and thought leaders like blockchain and, and smart contracts. Um, we think that that is a way that arbitration uh, will. Bring more efficiency to arbitration, and and we want to be in the forefront of the of the technology changes that come to international arbitrations. Um, it 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 takes a little bit of uh, a little bit more initiative to get these type of of, of programs going because we're a uh, all volunteer organization. I mean uh, we don't we don't pay anyone at Silicon Valley, um, but you know we think that. It will continue to uh, open the aperture for uh, technology ADR if people learn more about these techniques and they are adopted by uh, arbitration institutions and it'll just make uh, continue to make arbitration what it was intended to be, cheaper, faster, better way of, of ADR.
0: You're not only talking about educating and training people in existing techniques, but looking to the future we know efficiency, time, cost is all a very important factor for clients. You've been in the client seat as much as anyone are tremendously important factors for clients in, in managing, avoiding, and resolving disputes. So tell us about some of the things you're looking to changes in the future, the use of blockchain and other things. What kind of things are you focusing on analyzing and studying uh, it that may happen in the future to help make these dispute resolution mechanisms even more efficient?
1: You know, the real focus we have now, and I mentioned it, it, it earlier, is, is is dialoguing with with corporate counsel. Uh, we have been very successful at Silicon Valley with a number of our initiatives, but um, the corporate counsel are, are, are not generally not as participative in the international community as, as we would like them to be. And, and I, think, I think the reason for that and goes back to my own experience is, is often we talk about um, the fine points of international arbitration, but we fail to appreciate what's important to corporate counsel and to their businesses. So towards that point and in, in, in to your question, we're having the dialogue with them is to see you know what what they really would like out of the arbitration process. What would bring them closer to and utilize arbitration more, particularly in the technology sector. So the the initiatives um, we haven't definitized, we're really at the point of having the dialogue with the corporate council community to fit their needs. And to have them become uh, efficient users of the arbitration process.
0: Yeah, this is really something like marketing research. What, 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 what is the demand uh, from the market in terms of what services it wants? And can you tell us? Are you hearing specific things that the the corporate council, the corporate community, is saying about its concerns and needs and desires in 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 dispute resolution and especially arbitration?
1: The thing, the thing that we feedback we get from corporate counsel is, is that they would like to see more transparency in the international arbitration process, and some of the arbitration institutions are are, are going to this in terms of of, of transparency, um, naming um, the type of dispute uh, unless they party objects, uh, naming who the, uh, the two uh, co-parties are and, and the subject matter uh, of the dispute. Um, some corporate counsel are even going, you know, past that. Uh, they'd like to see published decisions. So they'll have the opportunity in uh, their decision making to see um, what certain uh, international arbitrations, you know, how are they handling these matters? how did their arbitrators decide, and, and using that as a database for determining uh, whether that's an institution they'd like to deal with, or just a get a general roadmap of how these types of issues are being handled in arbitration. Because right now, it uh, you get a reasoned award, and you know uh, why you won, or you know why you did not win. Um, but. Those reasons awards are not published, and individuals really don't know why arbitrators decided certain issues.
0: That's a really interesting point that's being raised, but isn't that the other side of the advantage of arbitration is having been spoken of for confidentiality? Is there a tension here between the desire for transparency and the value of confidentiality?
1: There's a natural conflict here. And, and the way it's uh, being proposed to handle, if a corporation does not want a uh, a decision published, um, that that decision will be respected. That decision by the corporation will be respected, and uh, a decision would not be uh, published, and it would protect the confidentiality that is a bedrock of, of international arbitration. But you know, the 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 natural tendency is is really, a, you know, a product of wanting to know as much as you can about the, the decision making process it, itself and the predictability of the decision making process. And, and that tension is going to have to be batted back and forth for the years to come.
0: Does this really come then down to people wanting to get more information on particular arbitrators in terms of seeing previous reasoned decisions that they've written?
1: Information on on, on arbitrators is um, is is something that large companies with large uh, international arbitrations uh, they use that information get gained from public sources to pretty much have an idea of of how an arbitrator operates. Um, Do they strictly construe matters? Uh, Do they rely more on the the equities? So that, and based on interviews with arbitrators before you may select the party arbitrator, which interviews are permitted by institution rules, as long as you don't talk about the subject matter of the case, you, you, you you get a pretty good idea. You know, what, what? what is missing is, um, you know, why arbitrators decided such a case. And that is considered in a number of parts of the international community as information that should be public information. And, um, you know, I'm not saying the majority feels that way right now, but it is uh, it's gaining uh, altitude and airspeed day by day.
0: Given the the tension between uh, the desire for confidentiality and this now desire for transparency, do you think meeting the calls for more transparency is, is that desire so clear now that meeting the calls for transparency will increase the use and favorability of international arbitration
1: I, I don't think we're at that point that that uh, pivot point quite yet Howard okay um, particularly. Uh, with companies that, as you've mentioned previously, particularly those who highly prize, uh, their confidential information. I, I think, I think that the veil that, that is, is on that confidentiality is, uh, has a higher priority than, uh, having the transparency or the full, uh, understanding the full reasons why in the arbitration community of an award.
0: And I would imagine that it's within the air. It's within the the technology area, the area of technology disputes, where confidentiality is most highly uh, sought after.
1: It is. um, And and I I would say coming from a technology company, I mean, that was, um, you know, issue number one to uh, to make sure the issues in in, in dispute did not did not see the light of day. Although um, In reality, I think we can all appreciate that um, if you have uh, an arbitration um, two or three years uh, after a contract concluded um, that some, if not all of the technology that was present in that case, I don't want to say stale, but at the advancement of technology um, in Silicon Valley and across the globe, it probably is not as uh, material or has such financial benefit as it had in previous years.
0: I also want to mention, Les, uh, before we conclude, you know, we always like to talk about when we talk with successful members of the legal community, overwhelmingly successful as you have been, about what people do to improve the overall legal profession and the kind of steps they take uh, to help promote justice in all sorts of ways. And you and your wife have, in addition, I I must say, in addition to your work at Silicon Valley Mediation and Arbitration Center, you function through the the Schiffelbein Global Dispute Resolution uh, organization, which you head. But you and your wife have also begun at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University, a Schiffelbein Global Dispute Resolution program, uh, which does a couple of things. And just as an illustration of a model for what lawyers, people in the legal profession, ought to do when they reach the kind of success you've had in terms of improving the profession as a whole. Tell us about that, that program.
1: Well, Howard, thank you for the opportunity to, to discuss it. Um, uh, my wife and I are, 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 are very proud that uh, we were given the opportunity by the dean of the law school a few years ago. Uh, to have a discussion to uh, endow what we now call the Shifaba Global dispute um, program and um, I'm a graduate of the of the law school and and I must say over the years in my military career in my lockheed career I was I was not as close to the law school as, as maybe I should have been but um, we have certainly um, become good friends and good colleagues in recent years. But the, uh, the program has two aspects. And the first is a, uh, global dispute resolution conference, um, where we, we really bring together the, the top minds and, and the top practitioners, um, top lawyers and private practice council for global corporations, um, uh, internationally recognized arbitrators and academics and leaders at arbitral institutions to engage in discussions on timely issues in international dispute resolution. I mean, we've had um, this year on January 15th of 2021, next year will be our third conference. It will be virtual. Um, But, you know, just to show you how, how topical we are, um, We talked about the uh, Singapore Convention. And and, and at the conference, uh, we're having one panel uh, entitled Mediation the World Over. And uh, two panelists um, had a major impact on the uh, organizing, drafting, and effecting of the Singapore Convention. Uh, Tim Schnabel uh, from the U.S. uh, at the State Department. Uh, he was the mover for the New York Convention. Uh, he was the United States representative and did did a lot of the drafting. I'm sorry, Les, but you mean the mover for the Singapore Convention? Correct. Yeah. Um, and also from Singapore, uh, Natalie Morris uh, Sharma. Uh, she was the head of the UNCTRAL Working Group Number Two, and and she did. Uh, put together the drafting and, and made the Singapore Convention um, what it is today. So uh, that's the type of uh, eye we have towards topical uh, programs and the type of individuals that we track to the programs. And
0: you also provide
1: scholarships to the Lost Business Program, don't you? We do. And, um, you know, I I... Providing the scholarships is as rewarding to us as as having the conference, because um, you know the scholarships help support uh, law students with an interest in in, in ADR and young men and uh, women who, who who attend law schools that that are not in uh, arbitration centric places in the United States like like New York and uh, Washington. DC or or San Francisco, Los Angeles, um, they generally don't have the opportunity to uh, learn from and and listen to global arbitration practitioners. And so the students who um, receive the scholarships uh, at times become part of our programs. Um, We encourage them to, to meet with the panel members. And to uh, make friendships, and even see if a mentoring opportunity may be available. And and one of the one of the greatest things about our program is the is the d- diversity, not only geographically, but the uh, the gender diversity and and e- ethnicity. Um, the invitees to our program are uh, fifty five to sixty percent women. Uh, over the last three years. We want to have a a balance and and recognize the initiatives that the worldwide uh, arbitration communities do have.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Les. I, I think everyone listening to this podcast can hear in your voice the pleasure you feel in talking about the program that you've begun, the Dispute Resolution Conference and the scholarships, and can hear in your voice what it means when you finally succeed, when you do succeed as a lawyer, and you have the opportunity to do things for the profession, the kind of pleasure that that brings and the kind of importance that it is for the profession as a whole. We thank you so much for that, Les, and Les Schiffelbein, we thank you for what you're doing in international arbitration and mediation with the Silicon Valley Mediation and Arbitration Center and otherwise. And we are honored and so happy. And thank you for joining us for this discussion, Les.
1: Well, Howard, thank you very much. It has been my pleasure. And uh, I I really appreciated uh, the opportunity to have this discussion with you today. Thank you very much.